Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Frank Ostaseski and host Steve Heilig as they discuss Frank's book, The Five Invitations, What Death Can Teach Us About Living. This is the new school at Commonweal, our 10th year. Uh, we're very pleased to... Uh, be able to put on a series of talks of wide variety. And so I'm wondering, with this lovely crowd, how many people have never been to one of these before? Oh, excellent. A lot of new people. Welcome. Um, we are a part of Commonweal here. Um, we present these free of charge. We ask for donations if anybody can help out, but it's not uh, uh, mandatory, of course. Uh, the logistics are simple. Please turn off your cell phones if you have one. We have uh, most of our talks are recorded, uh, sometimes videoed and sometimes just uh, audio. They're on podcasts on the News Kill site. And I've been asked to talk about a couple, or at least mention a couple. The last podcast from our guest today was in 2011, <laughs> Being a Compassionate Companion. I'm told that that has been downloaded tens of thousands of times now. Uh, on a related note, B.J. Miller, the uh, doctor who was uh, with Zen Hospice and another pioneer on this, exploring the terrain, and Shoto Harada Roshi, the great Zen teacher, Zen in the Art of Dying. Um, I was here for all these, so I can recommend that they were great. If we have a mailing list, you can sign up. You can also find us on Facebook, of course. And, of course, please consider supporting the new school with a donation today. We will also have books for sale out here after the talk, too. This book right here. So the theme today is encapsulated in two things that I found downtown this morning having tea from the Bolinas Free Box, which is an institution here in Bolinas. One is this wooden carved dog, or maybe a reindeer, I don't know, saying, live, love, die, repeat. <laughs> now. It's like a message, you know, that I would find this in the morning here. And also a wonderful book. Many of you might remember a guy named Paul Reps who has done many Buddhist books with drawings and so forth. And I loved this one. It's a small book that I found. I copied this off. It's got kind of a W here, but it actually says, stamped on buttocks, a hundred-year free loan must be returned. <laughs> so one of the things that uh, our guests today and I have in common is about 17 years ago, Bill Moyers did a special uh, on dying in America, and out of that came a, uh, a many things, but there was a large gathering of leaders and big names in, in this world, such as they are in San Francisco, and a network called the uh, San Francisco End of Life Network was formed that has been meeting ever since. I hosted it for years, and now others are taking it on, but, and we're going to do it next week in the city as well. But one of the interesting things about that was People would often say, God, we have these great speakers, and we back then we even had a great lunch, and not that many people come. And I would always say, you know, people don't like to talk about this. It's a human nature. It's a death-denying culture. Um, you're all freaks. So I want to welcome all you freaks that have showed up today. But we were talking a little bit earlier. Maybe we'll start off with this and then get into it. But we were talking before we walked down here. 
things are changing in that regard, it seems to me. Um, when I first started in this in the 80s, just forced upon me by landing in San Francisco during a, a terrible epidemic and being uh, forced to confront death right in front of me uh, daily, um, there was there were basically two books on the shelf, Kubler-Ross and maybe another one. Um, people didn't talk about it. People had to start institutions to take care of people, such as the Zen Hospice that Frank co-founded. And um, people who got into this were, were freaky, <laughs> in a sense. Um, I was immersed in it for about 10 years in the AIDS epidemic and kind of burnt out and was going on to do other things. And when one day I was walking down the street in the city and was hit from behind by a truck who was turning left onto a you know, a one-way street. So people look because they know it's one way and they turn in. I was in the crosswalk. I flew across the street into, uh, onto the sidewalk. The guy on the corner market who saw this actually phoned in 911 and said, come pick up the dead body. But I was lucky. I wasn't even seriously hurt. I was sore for a long time. But when I got back to work, to my office, big stack of mail, and there was an invitation scribbled with the Zen Hospice volunteer application and description. And the scribbled invitation said, you'd be perfect for this, you should do it. I've never figured out who put that there. I'm assuming maybe it was one of my doctor friends because I couldn't read it, you know. But I just reflexively said, right, I signed up and applied and went. And Frank was still teaching the volunteer training. It was a serious commitment. You had to go every night for weeks, so you had to go on weekends, and then you had to commit to at least a year of volunteering once a week. And it was utterly fantastic in really every way. Difficult, but fantastic, just wonderful. And I consider myself extremely lucky to have met Frank in that way, to have gone through the training, and we've stayed in touch ever since. And one of the things that we did 15 years ago was he called me up and said, I have an idea for a book and a publisher, and I'm going to teach a week down at Esalon in Big Sur. Would you like to come down? And we can sit around and do interviews. We'll do interviews and record them. And that, because I'm not, he said, Frank said, I'm not really a writer and I need help. So let's um, do this book. You can help out. So I said, great, go hang out at Esalon. We went down, we hung out for days, we talked in the morning, recorded it, and then you went to the hot tubs and you list, eavesdropped on the crazy conversations that happened at Esalon and ate their great food. And then sometime later, when we checked in, I said, how did that go, did that help? And he said, it was basically useless, Steve. No, so, so, <laughs> so, so that failure of mine was a really great thing because now we have this book that he has worked on for many years. And has anybody, it's been out for a few, has anybody here read this yet? A couple people. Well, I doubt anybody here is gonna disagree, but it's, it's, it's his first book, and it's so much in here that I've read it once and I'm gonna read it again before we do this next week, because there's just too much in here. It's amazing to me. So he's gonna talk about the book and read from it a little bit too, but I actually wanted to start with that first question you know, what is changing about this beyond just demographic changes of people aging, but what do you think is happening in our culture, in our country, that is, you know, you've been on a tour and drawing, what was it, a thousand people? I mean, huge amounts. We're so lucky to have this intimate group here today because he's been out on the road. Um, and something, you know, you agreed, you said early, something is changing here to make <coughs> death more acceptable to talk about, maybe less fearful in some ways. 
Yeah, I, I want to say, but first I want to just begin by, by saying thank you for having me uh, and being back here at the New School in Commonweal is a big joy for me. It's like coming home. With, I've been here a lot over the years and I have a lot of dear friends here, so it's nice to be back and, and really fun to be with you. And um, I just want to uh, correct you right at the beginning. <laughs> that when I went to write this, It'll happen when again. I, when, I, when I went to write this book, I went back to the transcripts of, our, of those interviews that you did with me 15 years ago and a lot of it made it into, into the book. So thank you for that, yeah. Um, but to come back to your question, uh, you know, I think um, while we describe ourselves as a death-denying culture, it's not my experience, um, at least not on the level of the individual. The individuals are hungry to talk about this subject. That's my experience. Um, John Underwood, who's maybe inspired the Death Cafe movement, said something about, he said, we have given over this conversation to doctors and nurses, priests and undertakers. And we have absented ourselves from the con one of the most meaningful conversations of our life. And we need to reclaim it. So I think that things like death cafes, uh, death over dinner program that my friend Michael Heap started, um, the plethora of books that are now out on the bookshelves, um, are reflective of the fact that people no longer want to just give this over to medicine. The dying is much more than a medical event. And it's essential that we bring the best of what medicine has to offer, but I'm not sure we should let it drive. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I think the um, profundity of what happens in the dying process is too big to fit in any one single model, including the model of medicine and, frankly, most religious models as well. Mm -hmm. It's bigger than both of those, I think. So um, and here we are on a Wednesday afternoon with a full house here at Commonweal because I think people really want to talk about this. And so I'm, I'm you know... I'm encouraged by um, the deep wish that people have to find the relevance in this. And I think it isn't just about how do I prepare for my dying and how do I develop an advanced directive, but what can I learn from dying about living my life fully? I think that's really what people are interested in. Um, what's the wisdom that death has to offer? And do I need to wait until the time of my dying to find that? I think um, to imagine that at the time of our death, we will have the physical strength, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime is a ridiculous gamble. I think the time for that conversation is now, you know? And um, it isn't all about preparing for some moment at the very end of our life. I think death is with us all the time. I, I say it's in the marrow of our very experience. That uh, it's not waiting for us at the end of a long road. That death is the secret teacher hiding in plain sight. And I think our, part of our, the opportunity that's here for us is to sit down with her and have a cup of tea and get to know her really well and see what she has to offer us about living a life that uh, is more meaningful and full and, and uh, full of wisdom and compassion, you know? So, uh, I, I'm going to take exception to the idea that we are a death-denying culture. Yeah. Um, at least I'm going to be a voice out there saying, let's talk about it as much as possible and let's talk about it now, you know? Hmm. So you have produced this book. Now, we did a talk here a year or two ago with Peter Coyote, another mm -hmm. friend who was writing a difficult autobiography, and he said getting his book out was like 
crapping a porcupine backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Peter, yeah. yeah. So, um, was it really uh, difficult to finish this and, and let it go out into the world? Or? It was difficult to get started. Um, and I don't think I would have started it if it had not been for my bride, Vanda, who, whose idea it was to create the book. And um, she, um, she bought me a wedding anniversary present, which was an editor. <laughs> and uh, because she was convinced that there was enough material to produce a good book. It was a very kind gift. And the editor and I, uh, Mamie Fox, wonderful woman, developed uh, a proposal and sent it off uh, to New York. And it was received in one day, and the book deal was made the, fi- the following day. So it made us, you know, made all of my writer friends really jealous. <laughs> and also uh, it made me believe that um, uh, this was time to do this. It was time to do it. That said, uh, it is hard to write. You know, you're a writer. Um, and uh, it took um, blood, sweat, and tears to get it out, you know? Um, mostly because I wanted to really honor uh, the people that I'd worked with, you know? Um, my teachers are the folks that I cared for, you know, at Zen Hospice and, and beyond. And, and uh, my relationship with them was very personal, highly personal, and, and they taught me everything I know. And so I really wanted to be sure that I did justice to what they had offered me. Yeah. Yeah. So the book is The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. Mm-hmm. It is both a distillation of being with a thousand dying people and all of that, and a lot of personal stories as well. So I just want you to do as you wish now to read from it a little bit and tell us about it as you wish for a bit here. Um, Okay, well, maybe I'll just read a little piece, yeah. um, maybe from the intro, and then we'll see where it takes us. Um, it's nice to read to people. It's like story time. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's see. Well, let's start with the people I was just talking about. Well, first to say, without a reminder of death, we tend to take life for granted often becoming lost in endless pursuits of self-gratification. But when we keep death at our fingertips, it reminds us not to hold on to life too tightly. And maybe we take our ideas or ourselves a little less seriously. We let go a little more easily. And we recognize that that death comes to everyone. And this has us appreciate that we're in the boat together. And this helps us to be a bit kinder and gentler with one another. As we come in contact, with life's precarious nature, we also come to appreciate its preciousness. Then we don't want to waste a moment. Then we want to enter into our lives fully and use them in a responsible way. Death is a good companion on the road to living well and dying without regret. I want to tell you a little bit about some of the people I worked with. Some of the people I worked with, and that Steve worked with, Uh, lived in terrible conditions, in rat-infested hotels or on park benches behind City Hall. They were alcoholics and prostitutes, homeless folks who barely survived on the margins of society. And often they wore the face of resignation or were angry about their loss of control. Many had lost all trust in humanity. Some were from cultures I did not know, speaking languages I could not understand. Some had a deep faith that carried them through difficult times, while others had sworn off religion years before. Nguyen 
feared ghosts. Isaiah, his roommate, was very comforted um, by visits from his dead mother. They were roommates, huh? That was interesting. And then there was this hemophiliac father who I worked with, who had contracted the HIV disease from a blood transfusion. But a year before that, he had disowned his gay son because he had been diagnosed with AIDS. And now the father and son were living in twin beds in a single room, being cared for by Agnes, the husband's wife and the son's mother. Many of the people I worked with died in their early 20s, having hardly begun their lives. But then there was a woman I cared for named Elizabeth, who at 93 asked, why has death come for me so soon? (laughs) Some were clear as bells, whereas others couldn't recall their own names. Some were surrounded by love of family and friends, others entirely alone. Alex, without the support of his loved ones, became so confused from his dementia that he climbed out onto a fire escape one night and froze to death. We cared for cops and firefighters who had saved numerous lives, nurses who attended to the pain and breathlessness of others, doctors who had pronounced patients dead from the same illnesses that were now ravaging their own bodies, people with political power and acquired wealth and good health insurance, and refugees with little more than the shirts on their backs. For some, dying was a great gift. They made reconciliations with their long-lost families, They freely expressed their love and forgiveness, or they found the kindness and acceptance they'd been looking for their whole lives. Still others turned toward the wall in withdrawal and depression, and they never came back again. All of them were my teachers. These people invited me into the most vulnerable moments and made it possible for me to get up close and personal with death. And in the process, they taught me how to live. I wrote the five invitations on a cocktail napkin uh, about 30,000 feet over Kansas. Uh, Steve mentioned uh, Bill Moyers, and Bill and I knew each other from something else, another program we had done together, and he had invited me back with a group of um, experts to have what he called a teach-in around for his crew and and, uh, production crew because he was making this wonderful documentary on dying in America called On Our Own Terms. So uh, I prepared a very salient talk. It was really good. (laughs) And I arrived, and I was on a panel with some silver-tongued devils, you know, whose names I won't mention, know them. Um, And when it came time for my salient talk, they had run out of time. I couldn't couldn't give it. Um, The silver-tongued devils had carried on too long. So Bill pulled me aside and he said, could you just say something in a few minutes, you know, that really speaks to the heart of this work, you know? So I put aside my talk and I pulled out my cocktail napkin. And on it, I had written five um, slogans, five principles, five invitations. The first was, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait to tell someone you love that you love them. Don't wait until the time of your dying to find out the lessons it has to teach. The second invitation was, welcome everything, push away nothing. Now, this sounds good. It would make a great bumper sticker, right? But, but how do we do that, you know? To welcome everything and push away nothing, this really confronts us. The word welcome confronts our whole notion of judgment and comparing. 
To welcome everything doesn't mean we have to like what shows up or agree with it. It just means we have to be willing to meet it. It's at our door. I have a friend who um, went to dinner one night at the home of um, a man who was the um, president of the um, Psychiatric Association. And um, he had developed Alzheimer's in his last few years. And so uh, when they arrived at the door, this gentleman had had a hard time now remembering names and recognizing faces. And so they rang the doorbell and he opened the door and he stared at them for a while. And then he said, I'm so sorry. I, I don't remember faces very well anymore. And I don't recognize people's names. But I know this is my house. And I know that it's always been a place where people were welcomed. So if you're standing on my doorstep, my job is to welcome you in. Yeah. great um, African-American writer, James Baldwin, some of you have seen this beautiful documentary that's out now, I Am Not Your Negro. It's a brilliant documentary. And in the course of that, uh, in the course of his writings, but also in that documentary, he says something like, um, we cannot always change what we must face. But, wait, I want to get this right. We cannot always change what we must face, but we cannot change anything that we're unwilling to face. Yeah. So that's what welcome everything, push away nothing is. And then the third invitation is um, bring your whole self to the experience. Bring your whole self to the experience. Now, those of us that are involved in, in care of people um, um, at the end of life or caring for our friends and families. We imagine it's our strength or our expertise that will help. Yeah. And they do. But one of the things that I've noticed in my own work is that uh, my helplessness also serves and my fear also serves. They serve as meeting places with the people that I've been, that I'm in contact with. They help me to build an empathetic bridge to their experience. I found that over the years that the things that I was most ashamed of, the parts of myself that I was most embarrassed about or wanted to hide away, you know, they actually became the very thing that allowed me to be with other people, you know. They became my greatest assets oftentimes, yeah. So to, to uh, bring your whole self to the experience doesn't mean that uh, you have to be perfect. It means that no part of you is left out, yeah. And the fourth... Um, uh, invitation is find a place of rest in the middle of things. Now, we always imagine we'll find rest when we go on a holiday or on a retreat of some kind or when our list gets checked off. But if you're like me, my, my lists never get checked off, you know. My email box has never been empty. Yeah. So if I wait until all those things, all those conditions are in place, um, I'll never rest. So I have to find a way of resting right in the middle of whatever it is I'm doing. So that means I have to learn how to bring my attention fully and completely to whatever it is I'm doing because that's the way in which I really find rest. My, my attention isn't scattered here and there, right? There's a story I like to share, I share in the book of a woman I worked with. She was 
86 years old, Russian Jewish lady, very tough, you know, real character. And uh, the night she was dying, um, they called me up and I, I would often usually go when someone was dying at the hospice and go and be with them. So I walked in the room about three in the morning. There was Adele sitting on the edge of the bed in her, you know, night clothes, her feet sort of dangling off the edges of the bed. There was a wonderful attendant with her, caring for her beautifully. So I went and sat in the corner, because that's my way. I go sit in the corner, see if anything is needed before you jump in to help. Yeah? So sitting there in the corner, I, I, I paid attention. The attendant, wonderful woman, said to Adele, um, Adele, you know, we're right here with you. You don't have to be frightened. And Adele turned to her, looked her straight in the face and said, Honey, if this was happening to you, you'd be scared. <laughs> yeah. So I stayed in the corner. <laughs> and then a little while later, uh, this attendant, wonderful woman, said, uh, you look a little cold. Would you like a shawl or a blanket around your shoulders, you know? And Adele shot back, of course I'm cold. I'm almost dead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope I have half the tenacity of this woman when I'm dying. <laughs> but, but I noticed two things as I was sitting there in, in the room. And the first was that uh, there was struggle. There's often a struggle with dying. Not always, but often. And in this case, the struggle was with the breath. She was having a difficult time breathing. Every inhale struggle, every exhale struggle. And this despite us having made all the right interventions of, you know, morphine and oxygen and all the right things. There's a labor to dying, just like there's a labor to getting born. Yeah. And that should be honored. Yeah. And the second was that she didn't want any nonsense. She didn't want to talk about tunnels of light, you know, or bardos or any of that stuff. She just wanted real relationship, honest to goodness, authentic relationship. So um, I pulled my chair up really close to her, about as close as I am to you. And I looked her in the eye, and, and we knew each other for a few months, so I could be very honest with her. And I said, would you like to struggle a little less? That was my first question to her. And she said, yes. I said, okay. I noticed something there, right at the end of the exhale, right at the very end of the exhale, there was this little pause, this little gap, this nanosecond, right? I said, I wonder what it would be like if you could put your attention there for a few moments. Now remember, this is an old Russian Jewish lady, she doesn't care beans about Buddhism or meditation or any of these things, you know? But she's highly motivated in this moment to be free of suffering. Yeah. So I said, I'll do it with you. I didn't guide her, I didn't try and show her to do anything. I just accompanied her. She would breathe in, I would breathe in. She would breathe out, I would breathe out. Just that simple. It's very intimate, actually, to do that with someone. It's how I used to put my children to sleep. Yeah. And so we did this for a while, not out words. And then I noticed something, and that was the fear that had been so occupying her face seemed to drain away. Yeah. As she found this gap, this space, this moment. And after a little while, she decided to lay back on her pillow. A short while later, she died very peacefully. I think Adele found a place of rest in the middle of things. Do you understand? 
None of the conditions have changed. We're often trying to manage the conditions to get our happiness, right? But none of the conditions had changed. He was still dying. There was still struggle with the breath. There was all of those things that were there before were still present. But now the relationship and the way of being with all of that had shifted. Yeah, yeah. So to find a place of rest in the middle of things isn't about managing the conditions. It's about learning to relax and relate differently to the conditions in which we find ourselves. And then the final of the five um, is cultivate don't know mind. Now, as Steve said, I was the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project. I felt obliged to put something Zen-like in this list. You know? <laughs> cultivate don't know mind is one of those funny Zen sayings, you know, that are sort of counterintuitive, you know. And they're, it's really, they're really meant, those, those slogans, to kind of shake up our mm, linear way of thinking. And so to cultivate don't know mind, what does that mean? I mean, is that, it's not an encouragement to be ignorant. I mean, ignorance is not just not knowing. That's not what ignorance is. Ignorance is actually we know something, you know, but it's the wrong thing. <laughs> and then we insist on it, you know? Like America first. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Frank Ostaseski and Steve Heilig. So to cultivate don't know mind is not about the collecting of information. It's, it's cultivating a mind that's open and receptive and full of wonder and curiosity and uh, readiness. Readiness to meet whatever shows, Yeah. Cultivate a don't know mind is this kind of mind. It has a, hmm. you know, I always think about, uh, I have a granddaughter who I love to play with, and she's almost two years old, and she loves to play peekaboo, you know how that is? And what's really great about her at two years old is no matter how many times you do that, she's always thrilled. <laughs> she's always surprised, and she's always like, wow, like it never happened before. This is fantastic, you know? But now, Take an adult and throw them a surprise party. Yeah. Usually they walk in the room and say something like, who's responsible for this? <laughs> so I think a, a don't-know mind is a mind that's flexible and that's fluid, that um, um, is characterized by a certain kind of spaciousness that's infused with a deep interest to know. Yeah. Yeah. It has a deep hunger to know what's true. And I don't mean by that the truth, you know, like some religions got the corner market on that, you know, nobody does. But what's true right now? Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I was teaching a retreat for docs and nurses on compassion, and in the middle of it, I had a heart attack. Actually, I didn't have a heart attack in the retreat. I had heart pain. And I denied it first time. And then the second time, I was leading a guided meditation on sensing the body. <laughs> And this pain comes rippling through my body, and I just notice sensation, sensation, you know. And the third time, I was in a video conference, kind of what we're doing here, with Ramdas. And Ramdas is a dear friend and a longtime colleague, and, and I love him. And I was very irritable with him. And it reminded me of how my wife was when she was giving birth to our first son. Yeah. A little irritable with me and my efforts to try and show her how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I, uh, I went to the hospital, and actually I had a heart attack in the ER, which was very convenient. <laughs> anyway, I, I was scheduled for a triple bypass surgery the next day, and the night before that surgery, my son, who I love and adore, came to be with me. And, um, and we were having a heart-to-heart conversation. And in the middle of that, he just blurted out, Dad, are you going to live through this? And I love my son, and of course I wanted to reassure him, so I started to say, you know, sure, it's going to be fine, you know. But out of my mouth, I heard myself say, I'm not taking sides. And it really surprised me. I wasn't trying to be sage or Buddhist or any of those things. It just was the truth. I wasn't taking sides between life and death in that moment. And at first we were both quite shocked by my answer, honestly. But then something relaxed in both of us. And I think it's because the truth was being spoken. And it was being spoken with love. Yeah. So to cultivate don't know mind is to, is to cultivate an openness and a deep interest in knowing what's true. Yeah. So don't wait. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Bring your whole self to the experience. Whatever the experience is. Find a place of rest in the middle of things and cultivate don't know mind. These have been my guidelines for working with people at the end of life for three decades. But I find that they have a relevance for the rest of us in leading a life of integrity and um, meaning and purpose. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book was to share them and to share the lessons that I've learned from these remarkable teachers that I've had. Um, because frankly, I saw too many people coming to the end of their lives in fear and distress and regret. And um, while there are remarkable turnarounds that happen on the deathbed, and we can talk about this, that dying is conducive to a certain kind of waking up in our lives, that regular people like all of us sitting here who are, have find some capacity in themselves to face what they imagine would be unbearable and to meet that in extraordinary ways. And often I have found people, regular people, people with no inner life, no spiritual practice, no you know, visits to a psychotherapist, uh, finding, expanding in such a way that they are no longer limited by the small, separate self they'd taken themselves to be. And they um, um, find themselves to be much more than that. Now, we might say, too late? It is, I would tend to agree, too late to do that in the last week of your life. But the fact that this happens in the final weeks or days or even moments of one's life, mm, it's not how long it lasts. It's the fact that it exists, that that possibility exists. And if it exists then, it exists now. And my encouragement is for us to find our way to that kind of transformation now. Yeah? And uh, not to make that ridiculous gamble that we will find it in those final days or weeks of our lives. Yeah. So 
That'll get us started. <laughs> see where, see where it takes Thank it. you, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to speak, uh, speak is, some more. But. Well, there's so much in the book. So, you know, you mentioned the heart attack. That I, I remember that well. The news went out that this had happened to Frank. There were people all over probably the world, but certainly around the country, very concerned about this. And you, you, you had a difficult, in many ways, recovery from that. Uh, you write very frankly about it in here. Um, and people were calling. I loved one of these little vignette here. After my heart attack and triple bypass surgery a few years ago, a famous Tibetan Buddhist teacher kindly called to teach to wish me well. I knew he had had heart problems himself, so I asked him how he dealt with it all. The drama, the confusion, the precariousness, and the beauty. I half expected him to offer me some esoteric meditation practice. Instead, there was a pause, after which he said... Well, I thought to myself, it's good to have a heart, and if we have one, then we should expect it to have problems. The teacher, gi teacher giggled in his very Tibetan way, reminded me to get plenty of rest, and hung up. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. But I'm not your psychiatrist, obviously. Lucky you. But, you know, you, even before that, in my experience, most people don't want to come to really confronting this until it's forced upon them in some way, either be a friend's, family, loved one's, or self having some sort of health, life-threatening or at least health-threatening episode. But you got into it earlier. Mm. And you talk a little bit about that in here. Our colleague and friend here, Rachel Remen, has said that usually there's some episodes early in your life or even just one signal event of some kind when you're quite young that puts you on a path like this to try to confront bigger truths and actually try to heal uh, others too. Do you, do you remember that? I mean, you wrote about some very traumatic young, mm. I mean, younger mm. episodes in your family and mm. life too in here. I learned some things about Frank that I didn't know mm. um, that were big mm. in reading this. So, I mean, do there things that you think from an early age set you on this path? Well, I, I've always loved this particular um, question that Rachel asks. And Rachel, by the way, wrote the foreword for this book. She's a dear yes. friend and, and very kindly wrote the foreword. And, and we've talked together a lot. And she's asked this question, you know, when were you first called to this work? You know, She asks people, and often people say, you know, 10 years old? No, that's then. Seven years old? No. Five years old. And we start remembering something that we, were, that we cared for, you know. You know, uh, the, the wonderful Indian writer Tagore wrote a beautiful essay once about the paths in India and how they meandered because the children walked barefoot, yeah? And then later when they got sandals and heavy loads, some of the paths became quite straight, you know? But I, I always say I walked barefoot for a long time, and that's what brought me to this work. Uh, my own parents died when I was quite young. My mom when I was about a teenager, my dad just a few years later. They had had a tough life. They were uh, both alcoholics. Uh, it's probable that my mother probably took her life. So my, I was introduced to death early. It was an early companion in my life. Um, Buddhist practice with its emphasis on impermanence and, and, uh, and the study of death as the ultimate meditation came to me early in my life, my early 20s. I worked in refugee camps where I saw a lot of horrible dying and uh, could do very little about it in southern Mexico and through Central America. And I came back and the AIDS epidemic had hit San Francisco and, you know, we were, didn't know what we were dealing with, you know. It, well, it's, it's hard for us to remember that 30,000 people in the Bay Area died of HIV. 
You know, we, we forget what an what a amazing epidemic this was. And I think also one of the great spiritual um, uh, events of our lifetime, of this century, certainly, 20th century, certainly. People who would normally not have been caring for each other found themselves in the most intimate of situations, caring for one another and finding a way through it. So I think all those were early influences in, in my life, you know, um, and others, other things, of course, as well. But um, I don't think of death as the enemy. Even though I've seen a lot of it, you know, I um, I don't have some romantic idea about it. Uh, I think it's the hardest work we will ever do. That it will be beautiful and it will be sad and it will be traumatic and it will be transformative and it will be messy, you know. But above all else, it's ordinary. It's normal. All of us will go through this. Nobody gets out of here alive. Yeah. Maybe today you will, but I, I, I don't even promise that. You know? um, so I, I think that uh, from a very early, on, very early age, I, was, uh, I began to understand something about that. I was introduced to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful I did. Well, you mentioned wanting to inject a little, at least some mention of Zen into here mm. in Buddhism. So you were drawn to that and... Uh, it obviously infused the Zen hospice and the training. I'm wondering if you can encapsulate what it is that that brings to this work. Because I remember, and you mentioned when I hear it, it made me laugh out loud, because we had a lot of volunteers from the Zen Center, which is at least the guest house in the city, is right kitty corner on the street, so they can walk over. Wonderful, earnest people um, bringing some of their own issues to the bedside mm. sometimes as well. And I remember I was making the rounds around going from room to room and checking in, and there was one there, and she said, I'm, I'm going to read the Tibetan Book of the Dead to this guy who was right towards the end. And he was a lovely, uh, distinguished-type gentleman, but she was in there, and it's, you know, phantasmagorical dragons and all this stuff, and she's getting, oh, no, no, this is going to happen, Bardo and all this. And when I walked in, he looked at me, and I, I almost burst out laughing just because of the look he gave me, and he reached over, and he said, honey, Let's not overdo this. <laughs> yeah. So, beyond, you know, backing off from that sort of teaching, you know, how would you summarize what that brings? You yeah. talked about the breath. Yeah. But what else? Well, you know, in the very beginning when we were creating Zen Hospice, um, there's some people here who were around in those days. And um, we didn't know what we were doing. We just thought there was a natural match between people who were cultivating what we might call the listening heart in meditation or the listening mind and people who needed to be heard at least once in their life, folks who were dying. And we didn't, we didn't have much more of a plan than that. And we trained mostly Zen students in the beginning, 18 of them, first time out, and I sent them out onto the streets. I changed a lot of diapers on park benches behind City Hall, you know. And, um, you know, we took care of, we taught prostitutes how to take care of their johns, and we taught desk clerks how to take care of people who were living in SRO hotels, you know. And one of the things that was really beautiful about all that was that we didn't, couldn't wear our zen on our sleeves. We had to be real. And for me, that's the most beautiful thing about zen practice or about Buddhist practice is that it um, causes me to um, examine 
um, any construction I have about who I am and how special that is, you know? If I was gonna work with the folks that we work with particularly, I, I had to be really clear about my intention, yeah? Um, because, you know, if we haven't looked at these things in ourselves, if, if when, for example, um, someone's grieving or they're afraid and we say, I understand, and we haven't really examined it for ourselves, done our homework, and we say, oh, I understand, they will sniff out our sentimentality and our insincerity and we won't be trustworthy. So for me, the Zen part of this was to uh, use the practice to do numbers of, a number of things. One is to investigate very precisely um, our own relationship to sickness, aging, and death, and to become quite at home with that. Mm. The second was to be able to develop the stability that would allow us to be a calm presence at the bedside. You know, when, there's, when someone's dying, there's often a tremendous amount of chaos, you know? And one calm person in the room can make all the difference. Yeah. And then there was just, um, I think, the uh, sense of community that came, comes up about practicing with one another. And um, even in the silence, sitting next to someone in silence, you develop quite a strong bond and a sense of belonging and a deep appreciation for one another. And so when we carry that to, um, uh, to the care of folks who were dying, that really made a difference. I mean, an example is, um, I remember a man who came to be with us and he had been through a number of hospitals in the city and he was pretty worn out and uh, feeling quite a lot of despair and hopelessness. And he, we brought him to the guest house, what is what we call the hospice, the guest house. And he came upstairs and he settled in after a few hours. He said to his wife, I feel like I've entered a sanctuary. I feel like in this place I can be who I am, you know? Um, I can die the way I need to die, yeah. So um, that was the beautiful, that was the last thing I'll say about it is one of the beautiful parts of it is that I didn't have a night, or we didn't have a notion about how people were supposed to die. And they just, uh, we just were companions. And um, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the invitations is welcome everything, but also that's central to Buddhist practice. Whatever shows up in your body, heart, or mind, can you in fact include it? Can you allow it? You know? And then turn toward it to see what it has to teach. And the same is true uh, uh, off the cushion, uh, sitting in bedside with someone who's dying. Yeah. Hmm. So you were already a couple of decades into this work and a known teacher of it as well with lots of experience when you had your own heart attack. Mm. Um, when I interviewed Ram Das, one of the first after his stroke, and I asked him, Ram Das, you're a very famous spiritual teacher. You've been meditating and teaching about this for years. Did that help you in this experience? And he said, not really, no. <laughs> yeah. I said, well, what did you help? And he said, lots of pop. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, you know, do yeah. you think of, since your own heart, I know it was, you yeah. know, you read it in here, it was a struggle, the recovery from yeah. that. And uh, did you feel like a different person? Did it make it more real for you, yeah. this, this work and this teaching? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Ramdas and I talked about this. He called me when I was in the hospital. He said, how'd you do? I said, oh, I failed. I flunked. <laughs> I failed the course, you know. Um, I think that... Um, I used to think I knew a lot about dying, 
And then I had my own heart attack. And I found that the view from the other side of the sheets is a very different view. You know, when you're sitting on this side of the sheets making the bed, that's one thing. But when you're the person in the bed, it's quite different. And um, I, uh, when I came home after the surgery, which was a big surgery, um, I was, it was very hard. I was humbled and I felt helpless and dependent on others. I couldn't get to the shower alone, you know. And um, I was fortunate. Uh, not, not many people as fortunate as I was. I had a really wonderful dear friends and took care of me. But um, it played with my sense of self in a really, at first, very difficult way. Uh, finding yourself to be afraid all the time or mm, uh, dependent on others, helpless, is a... Um, it can, illness can be a narcissistic vacuum to begin with, but in this case, I, I kept getting smaller and smaller in a way. And then something started to happen. The more I paid attention to the helplessness, the more I paid attention to the dependency, the more it started to mm, not be so solid. It became more porous. I became more porous. I became more transparent, actually. Um, until finally the sense of self that I'd had prior to that kind of fell away. It wasn't that I wasn't still frank, I was still frank, but I wasn't functioning just from my personality, which is where I primarily functioned from before. There was something deeper that was now guiding my uh, actions. Now, um, and, and by the way, just as an aside, the people that I worked with, these, these folks that you mentioned, um, for about six months, I didn't put this in the book, but I had a dream almost every night where one of those folks that I had cared for came to see me in my dream. Yeah. And sometimes they came to say thank you, or sometimes they came just to sit with me, or sometimes they came to give me a piece of advice or counsel. Um, but it happened for about six months. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this... this um, this falling apart of the sense of self is something that happens in meditation practice quite a lot. So I was familiar with it, but I became much more intimate with it. And then there was a juncture, oh, I don't know, six months into the recovery, where I was sitting in my big leather chair where I used to hang out, and the door would stay unlocked because I couldn't make it to the door. And the doorbell rang, and this time, kind of spontaneously, I got up and I walked to the door and went to open the door. And as I was walking across the living room, living room, I could feel it. It was like invasion of the body snatchers. This old sense of self, it, like it came up in me and just reestablished itself. So it was like, it's okay, Frank, I'm back. I can handle things again. I'm, I'm in control, you know? And it wasn't a comfortable feeling. I actually felt like I was losing something that was quite uh, dear to me. Now, in fact, it didn't reestablish itself in the same way. Um, um, and we, we get along quite well now. You know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so illness has a way of, of, of playing uh, with our sense of separate identity, and, um, which for me is the great cause of suffering in our culture, is the way in which we isolate ourselves and feel separate from um, everybody else, you know. Um, you know, you're a surfer, you surf out here. Um, 
I got friends who are surfers like you, and they, they explained to me about the waves, you know, and how they start a thousand miles at sea and how they move over the reefs and things. And I would never understand what the hell these surfers are talking about, honestly. But I watched the waves, you know, and I watched them come in, form in their own beautiful, unique way, and then crash on the shore and pull back out to the sea again. Every wave, totally unique. Not a one of them separate from the sea. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see my life these days. That's how I am when I'm with people who are dying. Yeah. One thing I want to, maybe it's a story, excuse me for, is it okay if I just share these stories with you? Yeah. Um, one of the things that, I was with Jack Cornfield the other night, wonderful Buddhist teacher, founder of Spirit Rock, and we were talking, he was giving meditation instruction prior to our dialogue, helping people to attend to the breath and body, which is a beautiful way to stabilize one's attention. And then I said, don't count on the fact that you'll have that when you're dying. And uh, when I was, went through surgery, um, I was intubated. It was a long surgery, several hours, and I was in the cardiac care unit. And uh, in a kind of uh, fog after anesthesia, intubated, which means a machine is breathing for me. I can't breathe, and lots of tubes coming in and out of every orifice. Um, my friend Eugene Cash, who's a meditation teacher, was there with me and my son, my son Gabe. And um, in this kind of fog, a respiratory therapist came into the room and said, announced himself by saying, let's pull out that tube and see if you can breathe. That's how he entered the room. And I said, no, no, no. Because I could feel there was something wrong with my left lung. They had nicked my lung and the diaphragm wasn't working. And I took a piece of paper quickly and I wrote, I'm scared. I handed it to my friend Eugene, and he said, Frank, sense your body. And I tried, with all my years of practice, to sense my body. I could only feel from my feet to my knees. Mm -hmm. Then he said, find your breath, Frank. So I tried to find my breath, but I couldn't tell the difference between the machine's breathing and my breathing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I did something simple. uh, And then I remembered something simple. And it was a story of Suzuki Roshi. Suzuki Roshi was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, and the hospice was in Suzuki Roshi's lineage. And Suzuki Roshi was a great Zen master. Yet the night before he was dying, he said to his wife, Okasan, I want to take a bath. And she discouraged it, but he insisted. And so his son, Otohiro, picked up his father, and he carried Suzuki Roshi into the bathroom, and he began to lower him down into the warm bath water. And as he did this, Suzuki Roshi became terrified. Mm-hmm. Suzuki Roshi was afraid that he would drown. And his son said to him, Father, calm yourself. Find your body. Sense your breath. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi could do it. So in that moment in the CCU, I thought, if Suzuki Roshi can be scared, I can be scared. Yeah. And I took Eugene, I sort of pulled him by the shirt close to me, my friend, dear friend, meditation teacher, and I put my ear right next to his mouth. And, and he understood somehow that what I needed to do was to follow the rhythm of his breath. And so I borrowed his breath until I could find my own. Yeah. And my son uh, slipped his hand across my chest 
And it was like a conduit from God, you know, so much love in that. And that, those two things, the stability of the breath and the quality of love, were stabilizing for me. And uh, then I could say to the respiratory therapist, okay, come now, you can take it out now. One of the things I remember from the hospice teaching uh, was this concept, something of the near enemy in Buddhism as well. And the, the context I remember that in, and I think about you spending this life teaching about this, living it, being with dying people. To me, and the reason I withdrew for a time on this was, although it's a teaching, it's essential, the very first sentence in here saying you can't separate the two, enriches your life while you're here, it also can lead, or otherwise can lead into kind of like a nihilism. You know, everybody's gonna mm. die, I'm gonna die anyway, it's, yeah. you know, it's depressing, um, blah, blah, blah. Mm. That, I, I felt yeah. vulnerable to that. I actually had to, I, this is making me feel. What helped you? A lot of pot, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, no um, well, uh, taking a break was really taking rest, a break. you know, in yeah. a sense, and focusing on other things for yeah. a time, and then yeah. kind of drifting back into it in the context of working with patients otherwise, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was just immersed too much. I mean, being in the middle of that epidemic yeah. burned out a lot of people. Yeah, it sure um, did. Sure. So I just did in the ongoing way. How do you deal, avoid that kind of, um, well, I call it nihilism, just for lack of another Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's easy, as you suggest, for us to slip into that. I mean, I remember when I was first introduced to the notion of impermanence and I first started to practice Buddhism, and it's so central to that teaching, I used impermanence like a club, you know? Everything's impermanent, so I shouldn't invest in anything. Not in relationships, not in anything. And then, of course, I realized, oh, the fact that things are impermanent is the reason why we should invest completely. Because it's so precarious, it requires us, you know, you know right now, cherry blossoms are exploding in Japan. And, and I'm going to Idaho on Friday, and the cabin where I teach has these blue flax flowers that last for just a day. One day. And they're gorgeous. And why is it that those cherry blossoms, so those flax flowers are so much more beautiful than plastic flowers. Yeah. I think it's because of their impermanence, you know, their, their ephemeralness. So, so, um, so partly being with dying also has shown me the beauty of life. And, and, uh, and I must um, balance that equation, if you will, um, appreciate really the beauty. But also, it's true that, uh, you know, we will get exhausted sometimes, you know? People get empathetically concerned, but then they get empathetically overloaded. We get so merged with someone else's suffering, sometimes, without any stability. And what happens is, we get, we start to experience a kind of personal distress. So instead of caring for that other person, and doing something that would help them, we start doing things to them to alleviate our personal distress. This happens in healthcare all the time. For me, um, um, you know, I sometimes was with 20, 30 people a week that died. And um, so I used to do a few things. One is I went back to my meditation cushion, as we've been discussing here, for the stability of that. The second is that um, I went to a massage person every week. Mm -hmm. And a wonderful guy who's just who since died. 
And I would go in every session, and he wouldn't do anything to me. He'd say, where do we work today? And I'd sort of touch my shoulder, and so he'd say, just there, Frank? And I'd say, yeah. And it was something about just his hands on, my, on one place in my body, wherever it was tight that day. And that relationship was important. And then I would just weep. I'd weep for about an hour. We very rarely did, ever did a whole massage. We just touch one place, cry. I'd get up off the table, and I'd say, see you next week. You know? <laughs> And I did that every week, so that was a support for me. But the other thing I did was I, I had friends at a hospital in San Francisco in the maternity ward. And so before I would go home to my own children, I would go to this maternity ward where there were babies who were born to mothers addicted to crack. And, um, and uh, the children were quite agitated and restless, and so I would sit in a rocking chair for about an hour. And I would rock these babies. And there was something so tender about that experience that, um, and something so reassuring for me about being able to soothe, you know? And really, I was able to really help them not be in such distress. And I couldn't always do that in all the other situations I was in. And that would, those were supports for me. They helped um, uh, that and swimming in the bay, which was another thing I did to sort of do something really alive, uh, were all things that I, I did through those years. And, I've never burned out. I've had some brownouts, you know, but, uh, but I, it's because I never, I didn't think that um, it was all up to me. You know, like, there's a lot of rhetoric out there about compassion these days, and it's like a Hallmark card now, you know. But for me, compassion, um, well, it, it, it rests in the wisdom that we're not separate. And so, mm, I think of compassion as having two dimensions to it. One is what we could call absolute or universal compassion, which is endless and boundless, and it's always been there, and everybody and everything has always been embraced by it, even if we didn't know it. And then there's what I would call everyday compassion. That's when we do stuff, you know? We feed somebody, or we change soiled sheets, or we stand up against injustice, you know? Everyday compassion is exhausting, you know? And we get tired, and we want people to start thanking us for all our good actions, you know? So it has to be sourced in something bigger. It has to be sourced in something much larger. And in my case, that's this universal or absolute compassion that I think of. But absolute compassion is just a big idea. It's a big prayer, and if prayers were enough to, you know, uh, reduce the suffering in the world, we'd have a lot less suffering by now, but we don't. So that absolute compassion needs relative compassion. It needs our arms and legs. It needs our eyes and tongues to speak on its behalf, to, to act on its behalf, yeah? to be infused by that. So I never thought compassion was my possession. I always felt like it was something I sort of tapped into in a way, you know. And, um, and was a kind of guidance that's helped me to know how to be with sometimes horrific suffering, horrific suffering, yeah, that I couldn't, that little old Frank couldn't have done, yeah. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Frank Ostaseski and Steve Heilig. A lot of this is inextricably tied up with healthcare system, as you, you've mentioned as well, and um, both you and Rachel and others have really worked to try to 
bring a bit more wisdom into the way things are run there. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the don't wait in the short term. I mean, the average length of stay in a hospice in the United States is about two weeks, hasn't changed for decades. If you go to Japan, Europe, Australia, other places, it's two months. That was our average, by the way, it's in a hospice, about 60 days. Yeah. Yeah. So... And I was on duty yesterday, just yesterday at a big hospital in the city trying to convince these brilliant, intensive, and compassionate doctors to let a 95-year-old go who had been there for weeks and was not going anywhere from there. But they, you know, very frustrating, you know. Um, what do you think is, is their progress? I mean, a lot of it is tied up in training. You have to do training, and you do these. That's part of what you do, what Rachel has done so wonderfully at half of the medical schools in the country. But, um, you know, what's the big, if you had to pick a change that needed to be made there in, in that system to allow for a better practice in dying in this country, what might that be? Yeah, that's a good question, Steve. I, I don't know that I can name one thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I so appreciate what Commonweal has contributed to that, for example. Um, also what Rachel has done brilliantly as she in her Healer's Art course and, and what we've done at the Met Institute to train healthcare professionals in this. But, you know, I, I, have a, mm, I have a confidence in the good, kind hearts of some of the young folks who are coming up in healthcare. Um, they, the system is, you know, the old crustiness of the system is breaking down a little bit, and and the younger healthcare professionals are speaking up on behalf of their patients more now, which is good. Um, but you know, we still medicine is still an adversarial system, and um, uh, we still see death as failure. I remember teaching at NYU and uh, cardiac department there and the young I said death is inevitable and intimate and he said I'm not so sure it's inevitable <laughs> this was a cardiac physician I thought well how does he take care of his patients you know so um, so I think that um, my what I'm banking on is the general public frankly I think the public will demand of their healthcare providers more choices I mean hell we want our coffee in seven different ways, you know? And we're gonna want our dying to happen in, uh, in more in accordance with our uh, belief systems and our own uh, values. So I think the general public is gonna make some demands. Um, but the reality is, you know, we, we are headed for trouble. You know, we have an aging population, as you well know. We have a growing epidemic of Alzheimer's. One in 10 people in America, now over 65 have Alzheimer's, 32% over 85. We have 5 million Americans, 0.5 million Americans with Alzheimer's. By 2030, that number is expected to grow to 70 million. It will dwarf the HIV epidemic if we don't, aren't able to make interventions. This is real and we are completely unprepared. Um, one of the things that gives me confidence is that most of the caregiving in this country is not being done by professionals. We think about healthcare reform, but the reality is that 45 million Americans are caring for their loved ones, their friends and families. They are doing most of the work, and they're untrained, and they're figuring it out because it's something their grandmother taught, grandmother taught them, or their mother taught them, or they just picked up along the way, you know. 
And I think, uh, personally, I want to put a lot of my emphasis, and the reason I wrote the book was to put more emphasis on working with this population of people, because that's who's going to be making, that's who's going to be responding. Our healthcare system will obviously be a part of that response, but it can't be the only, um, the only, the only answer. It has to come from us, the arms and legs of compassion. I have to ask you this because um, it's one of my issues, and you only mention it tangentially in the book, but uh -huh. the issue, there's a movement uh, in this nation and around to allow for assisted dying, physician-assisted dying. Mm -hmm. We legalized it in California. Yep. I have a great sense of responsibility for this because I was part of that, mm -hmm. and I want you to tell me it's okay. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, yeah. the, the issue is, I mean, both in Buddhism, there's very yeah. ambivalent about it. Yeah. I know you have been. I mean, we all, anybody who's thoughtful about it is in some ways, but it's here now. The, yeah. the public demand yeah. is is high to at least have it as an option. Yes, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's your reflection on Well, that? for many years, as you know, I, I hesitated taking a position on this, even though Barbara invited me up to Oregon when, she was, when they were writing the law and wanted me to be on the National Board for Compassion and Dying, you know. Um, uh, so, and I met with the judges on the night circuit car and talked to them about it. And, and uh, so I've had many, many conversations and I don't think there's been a program I've taught where it hasn't come up as a question. And I haven't wanted to answer the question up until now because I wanted people to have much more discussion about it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want them to take the expert's view. Now, here's the reality. 20 years now we've had this law in Oregon. That's not, it's not a new thing. 20 years. 1,590 people have, um, uh, 990 people, excuse me, have um, uh, chosen uh, death by medication, physician-assisted death. Now, thousands of people have gotten information about it. Thousands more have, uh, 1,590 got the medications, we know that. 990 of them ended, you know, chose to end their lives in this way. Um, what that tells me is that we have a strong habit for living. <laughs> but that it's helpful to have some choices. The um, pain uh, hospice referrals went up in Oregon. Uh, pain management got better in Oregon. Um, these were all byproducts of uh, the compassion in dying laws, the death with dignity laws that got developed there. Now I'm curious to see how it will take shape in California. Oregon's a much smaller state, fewer doctors were um, um, making these prescriptions in Oregon than we will have in California. What's interesting is in the last year, where there was the average was about 40 per year, 49 I think, in last year there were 125 deaths in Oregon. There was a spike, actually. <coughs> so I suspect that we will find this to be more of a common choice for people. It's not my job to approve or disapprove. Um, uh, I, um, I've seen people have extraordinary deaths in hospices like Zen Hospice, and I've seen people have extraordinary deaths in ICU units. And I've been with a lot of people who have chosen to physician-assisted death, even before it was law. You know? So um, I don't sit in judgment of these things. I, you know. I was working with the California Pediatric Nurses Association 
doing a workshop where they're nurses. And I asked them a very simple question when they went in the room. I said, is it okay with you that the children you work with die? Mm-hmm. And they said, no. And I said, well, then you can't help them. That's what we're going to work on today. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that we made it all nice and happy, but we found a way of working with our biases. And the same is true with physician-assisted death. I think we have to learn to work with our biases. And um, our religious beliefs, our family beliefs, our cultural beliefs, you know, around this question. Um, what I am glad about, you know, during the AIDS epidemic, I was with a lot of folks who chose to take their lives. And a lot of times it got messed up. It wasn't well handled. And, um, and it left people in really terrible conditions worse than they were in before. So, um, you know, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. But um, uh, the, the fear that existed in the beginning, and you know, I was part of the um, group advising California Congress about this. And uh, the fear, of course, was of a slippery slope. And in fact, that has not happened in Oregon. And, uh, and uh, there's no reason to believe it will happen here either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about the um, issue of, there's a movement now also to reinvestigate and legalize various substances, illegal drugs at the end mm. of life. Yeah. For anxiety and for other things. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, one part about Buddhism is that, you know, the clear mind is essential and all that. But on the other hand, um, there are people who have found that this has helped them in some way, whether it's psychedelics or other yeah. things as well. Yeah. And, I, uh, you know, I think that uh, some of the work that's going on at Duke or NYU or elsewhere in the country now is... Interesting. And I, I, the stuff, the psilocybin tests that have been going on. You know, of course, we were going through this in the 70s before, and then it all got shut down, and now it's coming back again. And I have a lot of respect for that research, actually. And I've worked with clients who have benefited from um, taking some substance earlier on, six months before their death. And what was valuable about that was their, their anxiety about the experience uh, got reduced because... You know, here's one of the things that's true that we forget about. I mean, we give this nice 82-year-old Italian lady a bunch of morphine and many other drugs very close to the end of their life, and we don't talk to them about what the effect it's going to have on their minds. And it does. And that doesn't mean we should stop doing it, but we should prepare people better. There's a tremendous anxiety around dying, partly because of the cultural bias. And so sometimes what can happen in using substances like psilocybin is that people can have a more expansive view of themselves. They can come to know themselves as being more than the separate self they've taken themselves to be. I have a fear about it. And my fear is that we will turn these into more medications. And instead of helping people to address their anxiety and really working with them about it, we will start to medicate it, as we have before. So the nice thing about the research that's going on now, for example, at NYU, is that it's being coupled with really good counseling. And uh, I think that's beneficial. That's said, all that said, the dying process has about it certain conditions which are conducive to our expanding beyond our previous notions of ourselves. All the ways I've defined myself, I'm a Buddhist teacher, I'm a father, I'm a man. Uh, All of these are often stripped away by illness or gracefully given up. But in a way, they all go. And then we get to something much more essential. Now, that experience can be terrifying. 
for people if they aren't properly supported. But when people are properly supported, and we're not seen, we don't see it as a, um, uh, a wasting away or a loss, just loss, um, it can be extremely valuable. You know, one of the things, one of the boundaries that melts almost immediately in the dying process is persona and shadow. That which I've kept hidden in myself because I didn't think it was acceptable to the other starts to come to the surface. Sometimes it's our ugliness, but sometimes it's our beauty. I had a guy at Zen Hospice who came to us on early release from prison. He had stabbed his sister 17 times. He'd lived in institutions all his life, starting out from orphanages and juvie. And so he didn't feel so comfortable. He didn't trust us. But we just treated him with kindness. And what happened was that over the course of a month or two with us, he began to soften. One day, I remember, he came downstairs. He said, I'll let the girls help me today, Frank. The girls were the nurses. You know? And I said, well, what'd you let them help you do? They helped me get into the shower. Not take a shower, just get into the shower. And then he got undressed in the shower himself. Um, I worked at Zen Hospice for 20 years. The only guy who ever threw me a surprise party was this guy. He saved his SSI check. And he made all the plans. In fact, he, he wanted to ha hire a stripper to jump out of a cake. Um, but the nurses convinced him that a plain old cake would be just fine. And, and I walked in. I didn't know this was happening. And he planned the whole thing. Now, if he had demonstrated that kind of kindness in the other institutions in which he lived, he might have been hurt or even killed. But there was something in this process, this stripping away process, and the kind environment which could receive him in his stripped away version uh, that enabled him to, for that boundary, that false boundary between, between persona and shadow to begin to melt. Same is true of other boundaries, uh, mind and body, time and space, I, the granddaddy of all, I and other. These melt away in the dying process. And... Mm, People have new opportunities. So the problem is that we usually treat that as pathology instead of opening. And most of the people who are sitting bedside don't have the training to help people through that process. I got early training at Woodstock, the first one. I went to Woodstock. And I worked in the hospital because I got tired of being out there in the mud. And one of the things that they sent me to do is go work with the hog farmers. The hog farmers, as you know, Wavy Gravy and that gang, were basically talking people down off bad acid trips. And I learned to be, I learned there how to be fluid with people in their states of mind. And when people are dying, they have very fluid states of mind. And to learn how to travel with them is a skill that's helpful. Yeah. You're reminding me of a, one of our guest house patients. I, I'm his name's, I think it might have been Cherie, if you remember this guy. He was a very difficult man. I guess you'd call him a drama queen, and he pushed everybody's buttons the wrong way, and we just kept, you know, just taking it and saying, what else you, you know, what else you got? And giving it back to him and everything. And I, you've experienced this. I mean, and many people right towards the end, even if they've been fading out, they have a, a resurgence right towards the end of lucidity for a minute. Mm -hmm. And this guy was right at the end, and I had gone in, and I knew he was going any hour probably and I sat and I you know put his head on I kind of got there and he was sitting there and I, I, I connected to this guy for some reason mm. and I, 
I woke up, I fell asleep too, it was the middle of the night, and I woke up and he was staring at me. He hadn't talked or opened his eyes in days, it seemed, you know, he was out. And he just looked at me and I said, hi, and he said, I just want to thank you for the respect, that's all I wanted. Mm. And he died that night, mm. you know. Beautiful. Um, so, you know, these are the, oh, that's the kind a beautiful of things. Story. Um, wow. The Buddha answered this question very in a very interesting way, so I want to ask you what you think. <laughs> what do because I know I know people that you've worked with have asked you this. Mm-hmm. What happens when we die and after? Oh, yeah. Well, um, the Buddha avoided that question. Yes, I know. You know maybe I should too. Um, I don't know. But here's the thing. I'm really interested in what people think might happen. I think that we all have a story about what happens after we die, and I think that story shapes the way in which we die and also perhaps the way in which we live our lives. And so it's useful to inquire about it. Um, you know, I had a guy who was the president of the California Atheist Association come and die with us at Zen Hospice, and I thought this was great that he was so comfortable coming there. And so I would talk to him. I, I, I asked everybody, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And he said, nothing. And I said, well, what do you mean, nothing? Like, will you have ears? Will you have a nose? No, you don't have ears and a nose. I said, well, what do you mean, nothing? Is it like a dial tone, you know? <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. He said, it's, he said, you become molecules, and molecules mix with all the other molecules in the universe. I said, well, that kind of nothing. You're going to be all right. I don't impose my ideas on people. Um, there was a um, woman that I worked with who was a Christian scientist, 90 years old absolutely ready for her dying. She said, she kept saying to me, I just want to put my head in the lap of Jesus. <laughs> and um, once her granddaughter came to visit, and her granddaughter said, that, Grandma, I was at Commonweal, and I got a book. She didn't say that. She said, Grandma, I got a book. And I read in this book that when you die, everybody who's died before you will be there to meet you. So you don't have to worry. It's going to be okay. And Grandma got terrified. (laughs) Because the story that she told me that she hadn't told anybody else was that her husband, Edgar, had been beating her most of her life. And he had died five years before. And now the idea of spending eternity with Edgar was terrifying. So I don't impose. I inquire. Jackie was an African-American man, a 30-year heroin user. You might remember him, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, here he was at the Zen hospice. And so I said, Jackie, I said, here you are at this Buddhist hospice. I said, do you think you're going to get born again? He said, yep. And I said, well, what are you going to come back as? He said, Jackie. I said, what do you want to be Jackie? You could be a king or a queen. You know, in some cultures you could come back as a cow. You know, cows are very sacred in some places in the world. He said, I'm not coming back as no goddamn cow. You know? <laughs> so this is how I'd work with people. And I said, well, well so you're going to come back as Jackie, he said. And I said, well, how come? He said, because next time I'm going to get it right. <laughs> you see, now we're into a whole other discussion. We had, it just opened the door. Don't know mine. That's the mind that's curious. I, you know, if I'd come to Jackie and say, well, Jackie, we need to talk about, you know, what do you think and, you know, what are your religious beliefs on this and let's review your life, he wouldn't talk to me about those things. But now we had a different conversation just because I didn't come in knowing, you know. 
I just wanted to, I was just curious. I wanted to find out what he thought. It was his dying. Yeah? So that's my way of answering the Buddha's, the question that was asked to the Buddha, which is, you know, I don't know. But my experience in life tells me that impermanence is not just falling off the edge of the earth. Impermanence is not just about ending. Impermanence is about change and becoming. Go out to the woods, find a tree that falls down. It becomes something else. It doesn't, it's not, just, it's not a full stop. You know? Everything is becoming something else. So how that happens, whether it happens, we'll find out. Yeah? My father used to say, it can't be that bad. Nobody's come back to complain. <laughs> but he wasn't Buddhist, of course. Yeah? So we'll find out. We'll find out. You're right, will you? <laughs> Email. <laughs> so what I expected would happen here has happened. Uh -huh. we, you and I get going, and we've used up the 90 minutes. Oh, have we? Yes. Oh, um, which is what I thought would happen, and oh. it's, it's great. It's, it's fun to do this with somebody who's your old friend, you know, and, and who knows the work. You know, Steve did this work for, you know, long time, long time. 20 years, we said? It was 20 years ago that you were there? So anyway, that's a great big uh, plus. And plus, I love Commonweal, always have. Uh, Michael and, and, and Rachel, of course, are dear friends. I've been part of the Commonweal cancer programs here and always admired them. And, and I, I think the world of this place. So we're lucky to have it in our backyard. But yeah. Mainly, I just want to thank you for coming yeah. out here. This has been just great. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Frank Ostaseski and Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.